You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. If you're monitoring DNS logs or have protection in place to look for dodgy things happening with regards to DNS, then you have a chance of detecting this kind of activity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, my conversation with Alex Hinchliffe from Unit 42 at Palo Alto Networks. We're going to be discussing some of their ransomware research. All right, Joe, let's uh, go ahead and jump into our stories this week. Why don't you start things off for us? Dave, you ever been called in for jury duty? I have. Yeah. Yes. Me too. I've been, uh, yes, I have have received the letter in the mail, I think, probably a half a dozen times. Mm -hmm. I've only actually had to go in once. Uh, and, and went through the, the sorting process that they, you know, like, uh, like Harry Potter with the sorting hat where the right. lawyers, uh, <laughs> you know, decide if you're good. Murder trial. Right, exactly. And I think the, the moment the, the first couple syllables of the words journalist came out of my mouth, they were like, next. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I have never sat on a jury, but I have been summoned to do my civic duty. It is our civic duty, as you said, Dave, uh, to serve as a juror when called in the U.S., and other countries around the world. And in Maryland, if you fail to appear for jury duty when you're supposed to be there, there are penalties. Yeah. That can include a fine of up to $1,000 and 60 days in jail or both. Yeah. Right? So you can be out 1000 bucks and two months. I have to say, by the way, this uh, has caused me anxiety once or twice where, like, what happens if you if you if if they send you a letter and you just don't get it? Right. Right? Yeah. Like— then what, do they come knocking on your door? I don't know, but for, fortunately, I've never had to deal with. You're that. still entitled to due process for for missing jury duty, though. Oh, so okay, all not, right. You know, you you probably go before a judge and you say, "I never got the letter. I would absolutely comply with this." So, right. Okay. They the don't just goes, haul you off in handcuffs. Right. And- right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Good. But they may actually issue a warrant for your arrest. Mm. Right. Hmm. And that and that's actually the crux of my story because these penalties are real. Scammers take advantage of it. Hmm. And there is a story on Scam Busters about a jury duty scam. So here's what happens. You get a phone call from somebody who says, I'm from the state government or I'm from the federal government, and you were supposed to appear for jury duty and didn't. Mm. Oh, see? Yeah, yeah, there it is. Right, exactly. (laughs) It's it's so good. I I love that we don't rehearse this before we start, (laughs) right? We just talk about talk about what we're going to talk about here. And uh, this is exactly the fear that you were expressing just a moment ago. Yeah. Right? So you get this phone call and the guy says, uh, the guy on the other line says, you need to give me some information uh, for verification purposes, right? And then the person starts asking for all kinds of information, Mm. like your name, your address, your birthday. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, they're going to say this is for verification purposes, right? Right. Right. Bank routing number. Social security number. Visa they may, card number. They may say that you've been charged with a crime and you have to pay a fine in Maryland, $1,000. Oh, so oh. if you want to pay that over the over the phone right now, we can do that. Right. So give me your credit card number. Uh, it's, it's very easy to see why this works because yeah. of exactly what you said. 
This is something that has always bugged you uh, or sits in the back of your mind. And in fact, I'm sitting here thinking about it. You know, you're telling me you've been called dozens of times or at least gotten mailed dozens of times. It's only happened to me once. Or so you think. Right, exactly. (laughs) Now I'm nervous. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, you're staying one step ahead of the law. Right. (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm I'm nervous about what happens next time I get pulled over. You know, mm-hmm. um, I have been pulled over a couple times recently. So it, you know, within the past couple of years, yeah. And old Leadfoot Kerrigan over there. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's what they say. Yeah. Um, but uh, I have not. Uh, I have not had them say. You know, they always ask, "Do you have any warrants out for your arrest?" Mm. Right. <laughs> and I always answer the same way. Not that I know of, <laughs> but who knows? Right. Maybe there was a jury duty summons that I didn't get, and uh, now there's a summons for failing to appear for jury duty. Yeah. So who? I don't know that there are any more. You know that that's that's also an unnerving question. So when these call, what's this call comes in? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, first off, no legitimate court system is going to ask you over the phone for sensitive information like um, like your social security number your date of birth, all that information. Right. Uh, if they do call you at all, they're going to say, you didn't appear for jury duty. You need to come down to the courthouse. Yeah. Right. Right. And I don't know what the, what the process is at that point in time, but if that's, that's if they do call you, but they're probably just going to send you another letter. Right. Uh, a nasty gram. A nasty gram. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, but so when someone calls you, I, I've adopted this, uh, this new policy, right? I get, I started answering the call, the car warranty calls. Oh. Right. Okay. And they say our records indicate that your uh that your car is about to go out of warranty and I say, "Well, what kind of car do I have?" And they go, "Well, you have to tell us that." And I'm like, "You say your records indicate my car is about to go out of warranty." Yeah. What do your records say about what my car is? Do the same thing here. You missed <laughs> you missed jury duty. Oh yeah? What's my name? Right. Right. Of course, that doesn't mean they don't have it because there's all kinds of information about you out there. Uh, like the T-Mobile breach, it, it would be very easy for someone to utilize that that number and or that information to get your phone number and then know your name. So when you go, oh, yeah, what's my name? They just go, oh, you're Joe Kerrigan. Oh, right. yeah, I am right. Joe Kerrigan. Okay. Here's your address. Here's your address. Here's and all your information. Your email so, and your password. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. So that information does exist, but, you know, I still would do it to have fun with these people. Okay. But be aware of the scam. If someone's calling you, telling you that you missed jury duty and you didn't get a summons, it's probably a scam. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think you're right, and uh, boy, that I could, like I said, I could totally see that playing into someone's anxiety because that is a real anxiety that I have experienced before. Right. So, yeah, interesting. All yeah, right, I'm experiencing it right now. <laughs> All I can think about, I'll obsess, obsess about it for the rest of the day. Well, just you know, straighten up, fly right, keep under the speed limit, and you won't have run into any trouble. Right? Keep your nose clean, Joe. Hopefully, yeah. All right, good stuff, uh, and we'll have a link uh, to that story in the show notes, of course. Uh, my story this week comes from Wired, uh, written by Lily Hay Newman. Oh, she always does great work over there at Wired. Uh, and it's titled, You Can Now Ditch the Password on Your Microsoft Account. Hmm. You no longer need a long string of characters to access Windows and Office 365. Um, so Microsoft for a while has offered passwordless access on their enterprise accounts. Yes. And now they have, they're rolling it out for consumer accounts. And uh, I think this is very interesting. So if you want to, right now it's opt-in. You can go in and uh, basically get rid of your password and and log into your Microsoft accounts using other means. 
Um, I think this is to see a what good the other thing. means are. Well, uh, yes, and they do talk about that here. Uh, you can do, um, uh, I believe, you can do uh, biometric uh, if your hardware is capable of that. Okay. Um, they will do. Um, uh, you can use uh, your phone, your your device. You know, right. a, a sending you a, a, an indication on your device to verify that you're logging in. I mean, there's nothing exotic about the alternative uh, means that they're using here. But basically, uh, instead of using them as a second factor, they're using them as the primary factor. Right. Uh, you could use a YubiKey also, a, okay. a hardware key. So I like that one the best. Yeah. So they have a number of options here. Um, but I think this is interesting, that, first of all, that uh, an organization as big as Microsoft – uh, and by the way, I should mention uh, Microsoft is uh, a sometimes sponsor of the CyberWire. They, they like us to mention that whenever we talk about a Microsoft story. Right. Um, but um, that someone as big as Microsoft is rolling this out, I wonder if this could be something that uh, leads the way. That, you know, we, we've, you and I have asked many times, what would it take for folks to jettison passwords altogether? Mm-hmm. I think it would be interesting if this were a first step towards having the passwordless method be the default. Because yes. I, I don't think it is yet. I think right now it's just an option. But wouldn't it be interesting if passwords some t- someday, soon, hopefully, right. become the option? Yeah, we've been talking about ditching passwords for probably about a decade and a half now. Mm. Since, you know, the mid-2000s, we've been talking about getting rid of passwords because they're awful and uh, we're not good at using them as humans. Right. And it is a holdover like email from the late 60s, early 70s. It was never en- envisioned to be used on an internet-wide scale. Yeah. Right? It was, yeah. It was just <laughs> envisioned as a way to stop people from using all the time on a time-shared system. And – when you take something that's not designed to scale and scale it, then you have all kinds of problems. And we, of course, have had all kinds of problems with passwords. So, yeah, we've been thinking about jettisoning passwords, and now Microsoft doing this is great. I have – I'm I'm not a big fan of biometrics. I've said that frequently. Yeah. Um, main, mainly because they're immutable. Right. You know, you, you can't ever change them. Right. Uh, and And that may or may not be bad, but if it becomes possible to reproduce a biometric signature – uh, and and spoof a biometric signature, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Uh, if any biometric protocol gets hacked, thus it's it's going to be an issue. Yeah. Of course, you can change the protocol once that vulnerability is discovered. Uh, but I still don't like it. Uh, the the using a phone device, I'd like to know how that works. I'd like to know the technical details of that because if it's, let's say, I have a Microsoft app on my phone that I'm logged into, and mm-hmm. that app is what provides the the um the input to me that somebody's trying to log into my account, is that me? Well, how am I going to log into that account uh, or into that app? Do I have to use a password on that app? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like passwords don't really go away in that in that sense. Using a YubiKey is the option I like the best because it uses universal two-factor, which is a uh, public key, private key scheme. Uh, that, that key is generated on the fly, actually. The YubiKey doesn't store the private key. It generates it based on who you're asking, who's uh, on which website you're going to, mm-hmm. and a secret that it has inside. But the only thing Microsoft stores in that case is a public key, which is fine if that gets breached. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't matter. Um, and actually, that public key is only good for Microsoft. 
uh, it would not be good anywhere else. Yeah, with the way with the way universal two factor works. Yeah, uh, so it's I like that option much better. So if you're going to do this, use a YubiKey. Go out and buy a couple of YubiKeys, two or three of them, and set them all up to to be used with this. Yeah, I um like I use uh, LastPass as my password manager, mm-hmm. and they have a, a system with your mobile device. For example, if I'm logging into LastPass on my desktop machine. Uh, the second factor is the mobile app on my phone. Mm-hmm. And all it does is pops up a little window on my phone that says, is this you trying to log in on the desktop? And I just say, yep. Yep. And that's it. That's good. And Google, I'm in. Yeah. Google does that too with um, a lot of their their stuff. But you again, you have to log into the phone initially. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So um, I do like the biometrics on my iPhone. I think Face ID is very convenient. I like the way that it is stored on device in the secure enclave. So I think uh, it's a good balance between security and and not that Apple does not actually have my biometric information. Right. Uh, It's just... Yeah, if if someone wanted to argue biometrics with me, uh, you know, I'm I'm okay. If you want to do that, I wouldn't say that's bad, especially with Face ID. Face ID is remarkably strong. Yeah. um, For biometric, it's, it's, it's... of course, built into the Apple hardware, right? Uh, like you're saying, but, but not not just the storage of the secret, but the generation. You know, in in order to uh, in order for you to generate something, uh, you have to be in front of the camera. The camera has to actually sense your pulse, which is remarkable to me. Yeah. Um, and it, I mean, there are a lot of features built into that into Face ID. Yeah. Yeah, and it just works. Which it does. Is yeah. Well, the, the, that's that's the trick. That's right? Apple, right? <laughs> Everything just works. <laughs> right, right. All right. Well, I think this is a really interesting development from Microsoft here, and uh, you Me know, too. they have the scale and the clout certainly to to lead the way on something like this. So. Uh, this article points out that uh, they already have 200 million passwordless users on the enterprise side. Mm-hmm. So they've had the ability to really test this out and make sure that it's going to work. Um, there's a nice quote here from Brett uh, Arsenault, who is Microsoft's chief information security officer. Uh, he said, you think that everyone hates passwords, but there is one faction of people who love passwords. They're called criminals. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah. I think mean, that's right. So if that's something we could take out of the equation, out of the ecosystem, uh, it seems like a good thing to me. All right. We'll have a link to that story uh, in our show notes. And, of course, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like us to cover, you can email us to hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Lucio, who sent us catch of the days before, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he sent us a bunch of stuff today. First off, he says he listens every week, so we appreciate that. Thank Very you, nice. Lucio. Thank you. Uh, and he wanted to thank us for recommending sites for learning more about cybersecurity. Lucio says he does use Cybrary. Okay. Uh, that's kind of hard to say. Cybrary. Cybrary, yeah. Right. He thinks the price is pretty reasonable. It costs about 20 bucks a month if you pay for an annual subscription. Uh, he does say there are no refunds, so you can't get a prorated. If you quit six months in, you're not getting half your money back. Okay. <laughs> uh, they do have a seven-day trial. Yeah. So Lucio says it's pretty good. Yeah, not, not a terribly high risk there if you right. want to check it out. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Uh, he sent us a text message that he received, uh, as well as some other stuff we'll get to in a minute. But... Dave, why don't you read this text message? All right. It goes like this. Hey there. Sorry to keep messaging you, but we only have seven brain piddle samples left. 
These prevent dementia, boost your IQ in minutes, improve focus and concentration, improve memory by 350%, reverse the effects of aging, supercharged energy booster, feel young again. Remember, you're going to love it. Grab that free sample. You owe it to yourself. You only live once. Feel young forever. Read this article. Click here. Hmm. Lucio didn't go on to click the article which is, or click the link, which is good. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. This is probably just a spam message, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I, I like it. Boost your IQ in minutes. Improve memory by 350%. Yeah. There's an old far side uh, <laughs> where a salesman's talking to a guy who looks like his faculties are less than average. Yeah. And the guy goes, double my IQ. I'm, I'm in or something. <laughs> Reminds me of that. Okay. Very so nice. Very I, nice. I thought I'd throw that in there. Yeah. But, I mean, this is something here for everyone. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Just I'll be, let's see. I'll be smarter. I'll have more energy. I'll feel young again. Better I'll memory. Feel, you'll feel young forever, Dave. That's that's a pretty bold promise. Forever is a long time. Right. Forever like, is uh, a long time. Uh, you know, <laughs> do you I mean, show it, up and it's like the Lost Boys and they make you into a vampire? What if it just kills you? It reminds <laughs> me of that joke about, um, Joe, did you know that there is a mushroom that if you eat it, it will provide sustenance to you for the rest of your life? Ah, uh, no. Tell me about this mushroom, Dave. Well, it'll kill you. So the rest of your life won't be very long. <laughs> right. That's That's the joke. All right. <laughs> well, uh, our thanks to Lucio for sending that in. Again, you can write us at hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. We would love to hear your catch of the days. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Alex Hinchliffe. He is from Unit 42 at Palo Alto Networks, and our conversation centers on some of the research they've been doing when it comes to ransomware. Here's my conversation with Alex Hinchliffe. Our counterparts in in our fairly newly formed incident response team called Unit 42 Consulting, uh, that's formerly Crypsis, they were working some cases with some victims from this particular ransomware, and the collaboration between the two teams, that's the consulting side doing the incident response and the threat intel side where I am, have been collaborating and sharing information a bit more uh, freely recently. So we just simply came across this case for, for quite an interesting ransomware. And it's interesting for various different reasons, but we we picked up on it and and worked on it together and then published a blog. Well, let's go through some of the details together. I mean, certainly at this point, I think most folks are familiar with what ransomware is and how it works. What are some of the things that set this Mespinosa group apart? Yes, it's interesting. Um, I mean, ransomware has been been around for many, many years. I mean, since the 1980s, I believe, if I'm I'm correct in in thinking back that far. Um, But lately, I guess since about 2010, 11, in a more prevalent fashion, and has evolved over those years. But more recently, we're seeing this kind of what we call a post-intrusion ransomware and more targeted ransomware that looks a bit more like a traditional breach where there's some kind of you know spearhead into a victim organization and then instead of simply you know deploying ransomware on one system and asking for some money they grab credentials they move laterally they try and deploy their ransomware to as many hosts as possible and effectively bring into question that business uh, viability so that's the kind of breed of ransomware they're talking about here. What, what sets this apart slightly differently is they actually install a backdoor, which we call Gasket, this particular Trojan that we've called Gasket. 
to provide a, another communication mechanism, command and control mechanism with the victim systems. And, and that, that is a bit different. I mean, with ransomware, it's quite rare to see any command and control traffic from ransomware because once it's deployed, the communication, if you like, to the victim is through a ransom note that says, you need to pay us and this is how to go about doing it. You know, call this number mm-hmm. or email this address. In this particular case, they actually set up a secondary communication mechanism, presumably that if the organization kicked them out and managed to restore from backup and do these other things, um, potentially they might have a way of of getting back in and, and trying again. Wow. Well, can you walk us through how would someone find themselves a target of these folks and, and then what would get you infected? Yeah, so from what we've seen, um, and obviously it's through our kind of aperture on the world, through through our telemetry and, and through the incident response cases that we've worked, it's always been through a remote desktop protocol um, from Microsoft Systems. What we've seen is that quite often, especially post-pandemic, with more people working from home, more people trying to do their learning from, from home and everything else, that the remote desktop and remote capabilities have increased. And a lot of organizations are exposing this unnecessarily on the internet um, and in this case Mespinoza will um, effectively scan the internet looking for uh, remote desktop protocol systems and and then try and you know compromise that that system and, and get access to the network what we've seen at unit 42 is they've never used vulnerabilities to take control of the system so they've never used um, a bug if you like in the RDP service or any other remote control software it typically is using credentials. We don't know how those credentials came to be in possession of the Mespinoza group um, or where they were compromised, but essentially they've got these credentials and they can they can get their way into the RDP system. And what are their capabilities? I mean, once they get a hold of someone's system and they're able to you know, have purchase on that, what can they do within? Yeah, so once they get access... I mean, I think this particular group, I wouldn't say they're the fastest, that there have been some media reports talking about ransomware that can effectively hold us hold an organization compromised in, in a matter of minutes or hours. In one particular case that we worked with Mespinoza, I think it was about three days or just under three days from the point at which they breached the network. Um, once they were in, to your question, they dumped credentials and they managed to harvest credentials from various different systems like Active Directory, which controls all the usernames and passwords on a on a corporate network typically, um, but also systems like Putty and WinSCP and other tools that are used to communicate with other systems. And they all typically they store session information in them. So they use tools to, you know, gather as many credentials as possible, which helps them move around the network. And once they have enough of the network compromised uh, and indeed like some other ransomwares they even use wake on lan technology to try and wake up hosts on the network that may have been you know shut down or or put to standby mode so that they can get more and more victims once they have all that they they essentially use a centralized server to deploy the ransomware and execute it on every every single system now, before they uh, start running the Mespinoza ransomware itself, is it right that they, they go through an exfiltration process as well? That's right, they do. And that's not the case with every ransomware, but it certainly seems to be good, quite a popular technique, this kind of double extortion technique, where, yes, they will exfiltrate data, 
um, hold that hostage as well, uh, potentially, you know, leak some of it on a on a leak website, which they have, and then essentially use it as leverage for, for getting payment. And what they typically do in the case of Miss Spinoza is that they search and enumerate lots of different file types on all the victim systems, looking for certain keywords around um, finance and confidentiality and PII information about employees and uh, things like that, and even some more sensitive terms like illegal and fraud, potentially trying to find, if you like, any dirt on the organization or anything that they've been involved in that could provide even more leverage for, for the ransom demands. One of the things that you all point out in your research here is that uh, this group seems to be a little cocky. They, they have a certain amount of swagger in their communications <laughs> with their victims. Yeah, uh, certainly. And I think um, we were debating whether to call them kind of arrogant. Hmm. In their ransom note, they have a mini mini kind of FAQ um, section about what's happening and how to uh, you know get in contact and how to get files decrypted and so on. And there's one question in there, which is um, what to tell my boss. And the answer is protect your system, Amigo, um, which actually stands <laughs> for <laughs> which actually stands for the acronym. PYSA or PISA, which is the alias for Mespinoza. So Mespinoza is also known as PISA ransomware. So yeah, that's that's quite interesting. They call their victims partners um, because I guess that they're with some of them, they're doing financial transactions, you know, getting the ransom payments from their victims. So they it's almost like a business transaction to them. They call them partners. And the leak website as well is the style sheet or the theme, if you like, of the website is like an old BIOS interface from a, from a PC, you know, 10 years ago, which kind of indicates maybe that they are kind of nerds or geeks and they like that mm-hmm. kind of um, interface, but it's also, again, a little bit cocky. Right. Have a, enjoy this sense of whimsy while you're being extorted for, for money. Yeah. 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 What are your recommendations then? I mean, for folks to best protect themselves against this, what do you suggest? Well, I think there's multiple things that can be done. Um, And since in this case, we're talking about the initial entry point being across the network and across the internet um, using RDP, that certainly organizations need to understand their footprint, if you like, or their attack surface area, especially when it comes to the network. And so whatever is visible to them if they were scanning themselves from the internet is clearly visible to anyone else uh, with access to the internet. So I think they need to understand more about what's connected to the internet and lock down whatever they can. Um, So expose less to the internet and whatever is exposed to the internet, make sure it's as secure as possible in terms of credentials, multi-factor authentication, and also protecting it behind a VPN or a firewall or something like that. I think once the ransomware is or once the attackers are in the network um, and once the ransomware is about to be deployed, I think endpoint protection really plays a good role here. And there are especially more modern endpoint protection, which can look at behavioral techniques, uh, typically can understand when a program is looking like ransomware, because most ransomware does the same stuff. They enumerate all the files on a hard drive, try and find the ones they're interested in, make a copy of them, encrypt that copy, and so on. So actually it's it's relatively easy to spot ransomware uh, when it's mm-hmm. running so if you if you have the endpoint protection to cover you then that's good and in this particular case 
a bit like some of the other post-intrusion ransomware actors, they use lots of tools, typically open source tools for pen testers and system administrators. And those tools in this case are used for scanning the network and, and looking at all the open ports on the network and various other things that help the actors move as quick as they do through the victim network. Um, so looking at things like use of PowerShell scripts to communicate with uh, the registry and disable security products or communicate with Active Directory, those kind of things. And again, quite unique to this group is the backdoor Trojan that they installed in the victim systems. And actually that communication channel, uh, it has two. One is HTTP, the other is DNS. And I, I believe it relied mainly on the DNS one. So actually, if you can, if you have the ability of detecting DNS tunneling traffic, and in this case, it used text records, which are very rarely used and quite suspicious. Again, you have a way of, if you're monitoring DNS logs or have protection in place to look for dodgy things happening with regards to DNS, then you have a chance of detecting this kind of activity. So is it it fair to say that this group is relying more on the speed at which they can do things rather than being stealthy? Yes, I'd say so. Um, I mean, with ransomware, it's hard to be stealthy anyway, because often, Mm. you know, you render a computer almost useless anyway. Um, You do. You, you often throw up a message saying, hey, you're encrypted, um, you know, pay us one Bitcoin and you can have a, have your files back. So in that sense, it's it's far from subtle. But yeah, I think with these, with this group, once they're in, um, they have the tools, the discipline and now the experience. I think they've been active for since about April 2020. So quite a while they're gaining experience, they're evolving. So they are pretty brash, pretty quick, off the mark to fulfill their mission. All right, Joe, what do you think? Dave, ransomware is now like a feature of a full-scale penetration, Hmm. right? Uh, It used to just be that it would just be something that these guys let loose in your network or hopefully got you to install something. But in a penetration, these attackers are, are spreading through the network. They're elevating their privileges. They're installing back doors, which is terrifying because that just helps them maintain continued access. Right. Uh, they even wake up sleeping or, or computers that have been turned off with this wake on LAN mm. uh, feature. They send all the IPs in the range a, a message and then scan the range again to see if computers come back up hmm. because you could have a computer off that's sitting there, if it's connected to the network and has wake on LAN, this yeah. is, I, I hadn't even considered this as a, as a threat vector, but it is. So in the middle of the night, all the computer, you know, your computers are shut down at your office, but. Right. <laughs> like if, even if your users shut the computers, c- yeah. computers off at the end of the day, uh-huh. these guys can still turn them on if you have wake on LAN enabled. Wow. Okay. Um, they steal all kinds of data and then they install the ransomware in an attempt to monetize the attack directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find it interesting that these guys are accessing everything via remote desktop protocol or RDP. Mm-hmm. Uh, for any of our listeners that don't know what that is, remote desktop protocol is a very useful tool for computers within a network that let you essentially act like you're sitting at the computer itself. Yeah. So you it, remotely access someone else's computer. Right. But it, I mean, you're literally sitting there looking at a Windows desktop. It's not like you're on the back end 
talking through a terminal or something. Right. Okay. Um, so you get the full Windows experience. And people are putting these systems, according to Alex, they're just putting them out there on the internet. I don't doubt that at all. Uh, but that's really bad. It's essentially like <laughs> taking a computer that's on your network and putting it out on the street. <laughs> right, right. Right. Would you do that? No. <laughs> no, you wouldn't do that. You should at least be putting that thing behind a VPN. Yeah. Um, and then using multi-factor authentication on that VPN to make sure that the user who connects to it is is authorized and not some impersonator. Uh, these things are very easy to find when, they, when they're exposed. If you just put an RDP server on the internet, it is a very simple matter to, uh, to scan that IP address and find if the RDP ports are open. Huh. Uh, it's, it's trivial, in fact. In fact, it's trivial to scan the entire internet and get back a list of IP addresses that have the RDP ports, the default RDP ports open. Hmm. Uh, and it's very noisy, but if you do that, if you do that massive scan from one location while you're conducting your attack from another location, it's fine. It, it works just, just great. Mm -hmm. So don't think that just by putting something out on the, on the internet and going, well, nobody's ever going to look here. Every attacker is always going to look there. Right. <laughs> they're going to see it. But they're just systematically scanning everything. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and they're doing it all the time, mm -hmm. looking for new targets. Alex said once they found the RDP system, they're not hacking in, right? They're not using any exploits. They're just using credentials mm -hmm. to get into these systems, hmm. which means these credentials were somehow fished before. Well, guess how you stop uh, using uh, people from using fish credentials? Multi-factor authentication again. Right. So if you have multi-factor authentication, not only on, well, if you had this thing out there, you shouldn't have it out there, but you should have it on the VPN, but you should also have it on the remote desktop. You should have uh, an Active Directory using multi-factor authentication. Hmm. Or perhaps the uh, new passwordless thing <laughs> you talked about today with uh, Microsoft. Right. That could work. Uh, speed is key for these guys. Three days is remarkably fast. Uh, about a year ago, we were talking about the average time to discovering someone's in your network being like six months. Yeah, yeah. Um, And now, I mean, these guys are not going in there for, to do reconnaissance for six months and, and stick around in your network and maintain a presence and observe. They're actually going in there with, you know, essentially doing a smash grab and, and, and disable, mm -hmm. right? So, but three days to get in there, do all this stuff and get out and, and then demand a ransom is remarkably fast. They call their victims partners, <laughs> which, which is which is kind of bold, I think. Um, and one of the things that uh, that Alex said that's key is these guys have been around since 2020, and as they practice their skills, they really, really, really get a lot better at them. Yeah. So they're only going to get more efficient at doing this. Yeah. Lots of refinement that goes on. They right. They have the ability to iterate quickly. Yes, they do. Yeah. All right. Well, again, our thanks to uh, Alex Hinchliffe from Unit 42 at Palo Alto for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. We want to thank all of you for listening. That is our show. Of course, we want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Ivan. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 